As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Torella. And I'm your better, prettier, younger host, Tori. We're sisters who are obsessed with true crime and love gal palin with you about cases. You can expect the occasional curse word, lots of friends quotes, and all the 90s nostalgia. To get in on the conversation, check us out at KillerQueensPodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Killer Queens Podcast. And we're on YouTube at Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge and let's talk about some true crime. Hey, you guys. Hey. I feel like it's game day for me. If if I were to have ever played a sport, I don't believe yeah. in that. I don't believe in playing sports. But if I did, today would be like my Super Bowl. Oh, So you jumped from having played no sports at all to going straight to the Super Bowl. Is that what I'm hearing? Oh, and I'm winning it, bitch. I'm winning that Super Bowl. Getting that ring. Yeah, right. Okay. Mm -hmm. And do you know why? Why? Because I've read a bunch of documents, okay? Hundreds and hundreds of pages of documents. I am ready. Okay. Well, even though I think you're full of crap and just ridiculous, I am on board with Gatorading your ass. Ooh, that feels, that sounds cold and I don't like to be cold. <laughs> well, Torella, I mean, no one asked anyone what they really want to do. It just happens to them, okay? Mm. But I also am the master of my own destiny. Mm. And I don't see my destiny, including being Gatorated. But, you know, we'll see what happens. Mm. Okay. 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 Well, let's move on, shall we? Let's do that. Okay. So we are kind of inserting a case where initially it had not been scheduled, but we feel like it needs to be addressed and we wanted to address it sooner rather than later. And um, you already know what case that is because you clicked on it. But if you didn't read it, it is the... I always struggle with cases of possible wrongful conviction because it does take focus off the victims, you know? Right. So this is the murder of Sharice and Lacey Joe Christopher and the brutal attack on her son, Nicholas, who has survived. But, you know, now it has become the case of Purvis Payne because he's been convicted and it's a good possibility that he didn't do this. So I don't know. Wrongful convictions are so tragic for so many reasons 
And I mean, the biggest reason is the victims don't have justice. Mm-hmm. Like, find out who actually did this. And I'll, I'll say up front, if it is Purvis, fine. You know, like, but I think well, that there needed to be an investigation. Well, yeah. And we always come to anything being like, look, if we're wrong, let us know. And we mm-hmm. will, you know, react and change our thoughts accordingly. But we need, we need information. We need proof. We need investigation. The whole shebang. We're not just going to accept something willy-nilly. And we have our thoughts. So if there's something we're missing, again, I have to go back always to... Beauty and the Beast, it's like, I don't know why I didn't see it there before. That's the thing that we want to have happen. Exactly. It's just a big mess. It's a big mess. It's just a clusterfuck, isn't it? It really, really is. Okay, so let us, uh, before we get into the case, of course, just remind you guys that we do have a Patreon. And I did not realize until very recently that some of you don't even know what that is. Mm-hmm. Well, I do know that certain people don't know what that is by talking to them and telling them about Mm -hmm. it. And they're like, what, pray tell, is a Patreon? And then I will go into the whole shebang. But Mm -hmm, yes, mm -hmm. I think that it is important to know or to remember that not everybody knows all of the things that we are saying out loud. Right, yeah. Because I just, I listened to a lot of podcasts and that's how I figured out what it was. But if I wasn't, you know, if I didn't listen to multiple ones, I wouldn't have known, you know? Well, and it's, I mean, gosh, I learned from YouTube and bands and things like that. I mean, it's its a great, mm-hmm. a great resource for a lot of different areas. Yeah, for sure. And we also have a highlight on Instagram that kind of goes through the different levels of the Patreon too. So you can get more information if you check out our Instagram, but it's basically a membership and you get additional content. So it's, Patreon's a great way, like you said, there's YouTube creators on there, there's uh, musicians, there's artists, there's just all kinds of creators on there and you can support their work that way. So we have two other shows in addition to our weekly episodes that we put out on, you know, Apple, Spotify, all the all the free avenues. We have two other shows a week that we do. And you get every single episode, even these episodes ad-free on our Patreon. So you can go as low as $3 a month. We have higher tiers. The tiers where you get all the extra content is $10 a month and up. And I mean, three episodes a week, no ads, not an ad to be seen. Mm-mm, nope. Hiding her hair of an ad. You can search high and low. You never find an ad. You wouldn't find an ad. We invite you to try. You won't find mm-hmm. them. <laughs> but yeah, if you want a little bit more information about that or what each tier covers, you can check out our Instagram or go to patreon.com slash killerqueenspod. Yes. And again, I mean... If you can support it, that would be amazing because it helps us do what we do. But mm-hmm. I can't stress it enough. It's a month for just ad-free. It's less than two surges a month. You know what I'm saying? Like, Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Capri Suns, I mean, you could get a whole pack of them and it would still be less than that. You know what I mean? So yeah, exactly. And if monetarily you're not in a place to support the show, we totally understand that listening is amazing. Sharing is also amazing though. Yeah. You can share the show. You can leave a review on iTunes or like the Apple podcast app. Like there are ways to support the show without paying a dime. And we appreciate all of you guys. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So shall we? I think we should. Okay. 
On Saturday, June 27, 1987, Cherise Christopher and her two-year-old daughter Lacey were stabbed to death in their upstairs apartment in Millington, Tennessee. Her three-year-old son Nicholas was also attacked, but fortunately he survived. Shortly after, 19-year-old Purvis Payne was arrested and convicted of two murders and attempted murder and is currently serving his death sentence in Tennessee. So the question becomes, was Purvis in a drug-fueled rage that caused him to brutally murder Sharice and Lacey, or was he wrongfully convicted? And I don't think we can specifically answer that, but we're going we're gonna to try to get close. Yeah, we're going to get into the dialogue of it today. Yeah. So let's uh, get a little bit into the information about the victims. So who was Sharice Christopher? Sharice Christopher was born in Millington, Tennessee, just outside of Memphis, and was one out of eight children with one sister and six brothers. Damn, that's a lot of children. What's up with all them kids? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That's a lot of kids. It's a ton of kids. By all accounts, she had a happy childhood and, according to her mother Mary, grew up just a normal little girl. She married at the age of 24 and had her first child, a son named Nicholas. She was married in Texas, and her husband was an abusive... Piece of shit unsavory yeah yeah he wasn't great and her sister angie said that she began to notice marks on sharice like around her neck when she would come home to visit sharice tried to keep the abuse she suffered private but her family could see that she was in a physically abusive relationship after years of mental physical and emotional abuse sharice filed for divorce and returned home to tennessee with nicholas and she was pregnant with her second child a little girl who would be named lacy sharice Three-year-old Nicholas and two-year-old Lacey moved in with her sister, Angie, whose marriage had recently ended. They chose an apartment in the, is it Hawassi? Yeah, Hiawassee. Well, I always thought there was an A in there, Hiawassee. Yeah, the Hiawassee Rivers. Yeah, that's what I thought. I just pronounced this also as Hiawassee, but maybe I'm wrong. Okay. Maybe Hiawassee. Sure. Sure. Hiawassee Apartments in Millington, Tennessee. The building they lived in had four units. There were two downstairs and two upstairs. Angie said they chose an upstairs unit, believing it would protect them from burglaries since they had no windows on the bottom level. There is no way they could have foreseen the tragic events that would take place in that apartment. So Angie, whose marriage had seemingly come to an end, decided Mm -hmm. to work things out with her husband. So she moved back in with him, leaving Sharice and her children in the apartment. On June 27th, 1987, after Sharice put Nicholas and Lacey down for their afternoon nap, the unthinkable happened. Let's go over, the way I wanted to do this was go through the state's case and then kind of go back through and add some context with the defense's perspective on it. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. So like we said, or like Tori said, Sharice's apartment building had four units. So you have two up, two down. Sharice lived in an upstairs unit and across from her was Bobby Thomas, which is the girlfriend of Purvis Payne. So that's kind of how Purvis gets brought into this whole situation anyway. Below Sharice was the building manager, Nancy Wilson. And the two upstairs units were separated by a narrow hallway and both units had back doors from the kitchen that led to little porches, kind of like balconies, you know, that overlooked the backyard area. And then in the middle, there was a metal stairway so that if you went out that back door, you could get down to the backyard area. So you've got, you know, stairs at the front of the building and the back of the building. You can exit either way. So Nancy is getting on her afternoon nap. I think she's just... You know, she's a little tired. She had a big morning. She's trying to rest. Mm-hmm. And she said she hears some unusual sounds in the apartment above hers. And the information that I'm pulling or what I'm about to go through is pulled directly from the state's court document. So I'm going to read it as it appears. Nancy says she heard a door banging open and shut and Cherie screaming, get out, get out. She said it wasn't as though she was telling the intruder to get out. It was like children get out. The commotion began about 3.10 p.m., subsided momentarily, then began again and became terribly loud, horribly loud. She went to the back door of her apartment, went outside and started to go to the Christopher apartment to investigate, but decided against that and returned to her apartment and immediately called the police. And just a side note for me, put a pin in that because she does actually go to the backyard and later we're going to talk about what was going on in the backyard. We're also going to talk about timing. So just kind of keep all this in mind. Back to the court document. She testified that she told police she heard a blood curdling scream from the upstairs apartment and that she could not handle the situation. The dispatcher testified that he received the disturbance call at 3.23 p.m. and immediately dispatched a squad car to the Hiawassee apartments. Mrs. Wilson went to her bathroom after calling the police. The shouting, screaming, and running upstairs had stopped, but she heard footsteps go into the upstairs bath, turn the faucet on, and the sound of someone washing up. Then she heard someone walk across the floor to the door of the Christopher apartment, slam the door shut, and run down the steps just as the police arrived. Officer C.E. Owen of the Millington Police Department was the first officer to arrive at the Hiawassee Apartments. He was alone in a squad car when the disturbance call was assigned to Officers Beck and Browell, or I don't know how you say that, Browell. Browell, I don't know. Mm-hmm. 
It looks like, like bra, bra well. and well to me. Yeah. Owen was only two minutes away from the Hiawassee apartment, so he decided to back them up. He parked and walked toward the front entrance. As he did so, he saw through a large picture window that a black man was standing on the second landing of the stairwell. Owen saw him bend over and pick up an object and come down the stairs and out the front door of the building. He was carrying the overnight bag and a pair of tennis shoes. Owen testified that he was wearing a white shirt and dark colored pants and had, quote, blood all over him. It looked like he was sweating blood. Owen assumed that a domestic fight had taken place and that the blood was that of the person that he was confronting. Owen asked, quote, how are you doing? Defendant responded, quote, I'm the complainant. Keep that in mind. Hmm. Owen then asked, quote, what's going on up there? At that point, the defendant struck Owen with the overnight bag, dropped his tennis shoes, and started running west on Biloxi Street. Owen pursued him, but defendant outdistanced him and disappeared into another apartment complex. Owen called for help on his walkie-talkie, and Officer Boyd responded. By that time, Owen had decided defendant was not hurt and that the blood was not his own because he was running too fast. Like, he assumes, Mm -hmm. okay, this guy is not bleeding out, so he's fine. Owen told Boyd, quote, there's something wrong in that apartment. So they returned to 4516 Biloxi. Nancy Wilson had a master key and let them in the locked Christopher apartment. I have questions about that. Why was it locked? Well, what lock are we talking about, though? Well, yeah, again, I don't, they don't specify, but it just doesn't make any sense. As soon as the door was opened, they saw blood on the walls, floor, everywhere. The three bodies were on the floor of the kitchen. Boyd discovered that the boy was still breathing and called for an ambulance and reported their findings to the chief of police and the detective division. A medic ambulance arrived, quickly confirmed that Sharice and Lacey were dead and departed with Nicholas. He was taken to Le Bonheur Children's Hospital in Memphis and was on the operating table there from 6 p.m. until 1 a.m. Sunday, the 28th of June. In addition to multiple lacerations, Several stab wounds had gone completely through his body from front to back. One of those was in the middle of his abdomen. The surgeon, Dr. Sherman Hickson, testified that he had to repair and stop the bleeding of the spleen, liver, large intestine, small intestine, and the vena cava. During the surgery, he was given 1,700 cc's of blood by transfusion. Dr. Hickson estimated that his normal total blood volume should have been between 1,200 and 1,300 cc's. So he's losing just an absolute fuck ton of blood. Well, more than his whole body should have. Exactly. He was in intensive care for a period and had two other operations before he left the hospital, but he survived. Cherie sustained 42 knife wounds and 42 defensive wounds on her arms and hands. The medical examiner testified that the 42 knife wounds represented 41 thrusts of the knife because there was one perforated wound to her left side that went through her side. So in and out wounds produced two, he says. He said no wound penetrated a very large vessel and that the cause of death was bleeding from all of the wounds. There were 13 wounds that were, quote, very serious and may have by themselves caused death. I can't be sure, but certainly the combination of all the wounds caused death. He testified that death probably occurred within, quote, maybe 30 minutes, that sort of time period but that she would have been unconscious within a few minutes after the stabbing had finished. The medical examiner testified that the cause of death of Lacey Christopher was multiple stab wounds to the chest, 
abdomen, back, and head, a total of nine. One of the wounds cut the aorta and would have been rapidly fatal. Defendant was located and arrested at a townhouse where a former girlfriend, Sharon Nathaniel, lived with her sisters. Defendant had attempted to hide in the Nathaniel attic. When he was arrested, he was wearing nothing but dark pants, no shirt, no shoes. As he descended the stairs from the attic, he said to the officers, man, I ain't killed no woman. Officer Beck said at the time of the arrest, he had, quote, a wild look about him. His pupils were contracted. He was foaming at the mouth, saliva. He appeared to be very nervous. He was breathing real rapid. Well, no shit. Yeah. I would be if somebody was chasing after me, if it, you know, like, you know how that looks when you, anyway, we'll talk about it. Yeah, exactly. A search of his pockets revealed a, quote, pony pack with white residue in it. A toxicologist testified that the white residue tested positive for cocaine. They also found on his person a BND syringe wrapper and an orange cap from a hypodermic syringe. There was blood on his pants and on his body, and he had three or four scratches across his chest. He was wearing a gold Helbro's wrist... Ooh. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Wristwatch. <laughs> Not a wristwatch. The wowie <laughs> that had blood stains on it. The weekend bag that he struck Officer Owen with was found in a dumpster in the area. It contained the bloody white shirt he was wearing when Owen saw him at the Hiawassee Apartments, a blue shirt and other shirts. It was stipulated that Sharice and Lacey had type O blood, but do we know that or it was <laughs> stipulated that Nicholas and defendant had type A blood. A forensic serologist testified that type O blood was found on defendant's white shirt, blue shirt, tennis shoes, and on the bag. Type A blood was found on the black pants defendant was wearing when seen by Owen and when arrested. Defendant's baseball cap had a size adjustment strap in the back with a U-type opening to accommodate adjustments. That baseball cap was on Lacey's forearm her hand and forearm sticking through the opening between the adjustment strap and the cap material. Like, why in the world? That is so weird. Mm -hmm. Three Colt 45 beer cans were found on a small table in the living room, two unopened, one open but not empty, bearing defendant's fingerprints, and a fourth empty beer can was on the landing outside the apartment door. Defendant was shown to have purchased Colt 45 beer earlier in the day. Defendant's fingerprints were also found on the telephone and the counter in the kitchen. Sharice's body was on the kitchen floor on her back, her legs fully extended. The right side of her upper body was against the wall, and the outside of her right leg was almost against the back door that opened to the back porch. Laura Pickard was visiting her sister, Helen Truman, who lived in the downstairs apartment across from Nancy Wilson. She was sunbathing in the backyard and heard a noise like a person moaning coming from the Christopher apartment, followed by the back door slamming three or four times, quote, but it didn't want to shut. And this hand, a dark colored hand with a gold watch, kept trying to shut that back door. It was about that time that Nancy Wilson came out of her back door looking around. Mrs. Pickard testified that she knew the manager was looking for the source of the noise. And when Miss Wilson looked at her, she pointed to the Christopher apartment. She said that it was just a few minutes later that the police arrived. She did not have a watch on at the time. She testified that the dark colored hand she saw three or four times was at a level between the doorknob and the bottom of the door. The medical examiner testified that Charisse was menstruating and a specimen from her vagina tested positive for acid phosphatase. 
He said that this was consistent with the presence of semen, but not conclusive, and no sperm was actually found. A used tampon was found on the floor near her knee. The murder weapon, a bloody butcher knife, was found at the feet of Lacey, whose body was also on the kitchen floor near her mother. A kitchen drawer nearby was partially open. I know I'm asking you to remember a lot, but like, just remember all of this because... Nothing is what it seems. I, I don't mm-hmm. It doesn't look great, but it's, yeah. Correct, right. Purvis Payne testified on his own behalf. His defense was that he did not harm any of the Christophers. He saw a black man descend the inside stairs, race by him and disappear out the front door of the building as he returned to pick up his bag and beer before proceeding to his friend Sharon Nathaniels to wait for the arrival of Bobby Thomas, his girlfriend. He said that as the unidentified intruder bounded down the stairs, Wearing a white tropical shirt that was longer than his shorts, he dropped change and miscellaneous paper on the stairs, which Purvis then picked up and put in his pocket as he continued up the stairs to the second floor landing to retrieve his bag and beer. When he reached the landing, he heard a baby crying and a faint call for help and saw the door was ajar. He said curiosity motivated him to enter the Christopher apartment, and after saying he was, quote, coming in and, quote, ease the door on back, he described what he saw and his first actions as follows. I saw the worst thing I ever saw in my life, like my breath had just took out of me. You know, I didn't know what to do. And I put my hand over my mouth and walked up closer to it. And she was looking at me. And she had a knife in her throat with her hand on the knife, like she'd been trying to get it out. And her mouth was just moving, but the words had faded away. And I didn't know what to do. I was about ready to get sick, about ready to vomit. And so I ran closer. I saw a phone on the wall and I lift and got the phone on the wall. I said, don't worry. I said, don't worry. I'm going to get help. Don't worry. Don't worry. And I got ready to grab the phone, but I didn't know no number to call. I didn't know nothing. I didn't know nothing about no number. So I just started start trying to twist numbers. I didn't know nothing. And she was watching my movement in the kitchen like she knew I had saw her. It had been almost a year off and on in the backyard because her kids had played with Bobby's kids and I have seen her before. She looked at me like, I know you, you know, and I didn't know what to do. I couldn't leave her. I couldn't leave her because she needed help. She needed help. I was raised up to help and I had to help her. He described how he pulled the knife out of her neck, almost vomited, then kneeled down to the baby girl, had the feeling that she was already dead and the boy was on his knees crying and he told him not to cry that he was going to get help. His explanation of the blood on his shirt, pants, tennis shoes, body, etc., was that when he pulled the knife out of her neck, quote, she reached up and grabbed and hold me like she was wanting me to help her. That in walking and kneeling on the bloody floor and touching the two babies, he got blood all over his clothes. He said he went to the kitchen sink probably twice to get water to drink when he thought he was going to vomit, but he denied that he ever went into the bathroom at any time or used the bathroom lavatory to wash up, as Nancy Wilson had testified she heard someone do after the violence subsided. He was then suddenly motivated to leave and seek help and described his exit from the apartment as follows. And I left. My motivation was going and banging on some doors just to knock on some doors to tell someone like that someone needs help, somebody call somebody, call the ambulance, call somebody. And when, as soon as I left out the door, I saw a police car and some other feeling just went all over me and I just panicked like, oh, look at this. I'm coming out of here with blood on me and everything. It's gonna look like I've done this crime. The shoulder strap of the left shoulder of the blue shirt he was wearing while in the victim's apartment was torn. 
a fact that he did not seem to realize and could not remember when it had happened. He said he ran because the officer did not seem to believe him. He claimed that he had the Colt 45 beer with him as he ran, that the open can with beer in it spilled into his overnight bag as he ran from Owen. The bottom of the sack broke, the beer and tennis shoes were scattered along his route. He has said that what witnesses described as scratches were stretch marks from lifting weights. And he, well, I'll get into that later. Remember the stretch marks, scratches. <laughs> what else are we supposed to remember? I know, I know, a I pen know. and paper? Come on. I know. Yeah, actually, that would have been great. Stop this. Start it back over. Get your handy dandy notebook. We've got some clues. Take notes. Yeah. Yes. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Defendant presented five character witnesses who testified the defendant's reputation for truth and veracity was good. Ruth Wakefield Bell testified that she had known the defendant all of his life. She was age 40 and lived in the same block on the Biloxi as the Hiawassee Apartments across the street. She said that on the Saturday afternoon of the murders, defendant knocked on her door, identified himself, and she looked out her bedroom window and saw him, but she didn't let him in. She was upset with her boyfriend at the time and did not want to see or, quote, entertain anyone. She denied that she was afraid to let him in or that there was anything unusual about his appearance. She estimated that it was about 20 minutes after he knocked on her door that she saw police and an ambulance across the street. So, I mean, that puts a pretty tight timeline then. Mm -hmm. 
because according to Nancy's testimony, it was 13 minutes from when she heard the commotion to when she called the police. And that's, you know, it's like he would have mm-hmm. immediately had to go over there, immediately kill them. Just the timeline's all jacked. So that's when she sees the police. Defendant testified that he knocked on her door just before he decided to go to Sharon Nathaniel's and went into the Hiawassee apartments just to pick up his bag and beer. During cross-examination of the defendant, he was asked and answered as follows. Tori, do you want to be prosecutor or purpose? Uh, Prosecutor. Okay. Can you explain why there's <laughs> blood stains on your left leg? Left leg? Yes, sir. Evidently, it probably came, had to come from when she had hit the wall when she reached up and grabbed me. When she hit the wall? When she hit, when she hit, when I got ready to run up, when I got ready to vomit. When she hit the wall, she got blood on you? When she splashed, it was blood, a lot of blood on the floor. She got blood on you when she hit the wall. Is that what you said? She hit against the wall when she fell back. Is that what you said, sir, that she got blood on you when she hit the wall? I didn't say she got blood on me when she hit the wall. Isn't that what you just said a moment ago, sir? That ain't, that's not what I said. Tori, you did a great job. I tried to do it. I felt like I had to and seen it, you know, like let it go. Like give it that minute. Yeah, because it's hard to, it was easy, honestly, to step right into that character, but it's hard to leave him. I don't know why. Well, sure, sure. Well, you became him, you know, Mm -hmm, you're mm -hmm, one mm -hmm. now. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> You're one person. Yeah. Exactly. And we'll get more into this, but um, the prosecutor said that the person that did that part of the cross-examination, that when he was like, did you say she hit the wall? Like that you could have heard it like eight counties over or something. Like she said he really, really. It was like really, this booming voice. Yeah. Yes. So again, nailed it. <laughs> Thank you. Blood was smeared on the wall of the kitchen next to the back door and on the door itself from doorknob height to the floor and laterally approximately six or seven feet. Defendant insists that the evidence is wholly circumstantial and is insufficient to support the verdict. So Mm. I know that was long and I grabbed that from the document, but I mean, it lays everything out and this is the court's decision, what the court has in front of them this is what the prosecution has entered as fact. Mm. (laughs) So let's get into why, what would be the motive? And we know that prosecution does not have to prove motive. No, defense only does. Yeah, (laughs) but it helps. It can usually help get a conviction because people want to know why. Right. Well, and we've learned too that prosecution doesn't have to prove a True motive, it just has to be a convenient motive. Exactly. They just have to give like, well, probably this or probably that. Which would you believe? Mm Because that's what it was. Whatever you prefer. Either one of those. Yeah. Yeah. So what is their motive, Tori? So the prosecution alleges that Purvis Payne had spent the day riding around with his friend Sylvester Robinson, drinking alcohol, shooting up cocaine, and looking at Playboy magazines. His girlfriend, Bobby Thomas, was visiting family in Arkansas and had not yet returned when he was dropped off at her apartment. And since he did not have a key, he waited for her to come back. They allege that, quote, he was unable to account for the expenditure of 30 to $50 and the sums that he withdrew from the bank on Friday and Saturday morning. And the state's theory was that he spent it for cocaine and used the syringe he purchased to administer it. My question is, Mm-hmm. Just of that. So they said he took out thirty to fifty dollars. 
Which is it? At first, it sounds like you're saying 3250. Oh. Well, because mm-hmm. that would make more sense. But no, it's two completely different sums of money. It's either 30 or $50. I'm like, where did you get that number? Because shouldn't you have the fucking bank records? Is it 30 or $50? Yeah, it's not like you borrowed money from someone and you it's just like hearsay. You have proof. Mm-hmm. Unless they're saying he withdrew 30 on one day and 50 on the other day, but that's not the way they're saying it. Th- I don't know. That's not how I read it. And then, so they're like, he can't account for what he spent that money on. But they also just said that he bought a bunch of beer at the convenience store, gas station, whatever. So I'm not saying that it's $30 for four beers, but could he have bought other stuff there? I mean, we do have that he did go to that store. So could he have bought other stuff for, you know, like, That is somewhat of an accounting, I feel like. Like you said, you're saying that he bought that to tie the beers to him, but then you're saying he can't tell us what he spent his money on. And it had to have been on cocaine. Like I would, I don't know in 1987 how much cocaine costs, but I don't know. Yeah, I have no idea. I don't know what cocaine costs in 2021. That's true. I don't, yeah. (laughs) Also, I mean, this may be a really stupid question, but can you shoot up cocaine? Is that a thing? I've heard of smoking it. I've heard of snorting it. I personally have never heard of shooting it up, but I don't know what you can and can't shoot up. I don't know. Yeah, that I don't either. But Because even if I was into recreational drugs or drugs, I could never shoot anything up because I would pass out in my own vomit and vomit in my own pass out. Yeah, you totally would. You would never make it to the shooting up part. Yeah, I feel like that would be like a dead giveaway for any kind of case that I would be accused of or anything if they ever brought into question like, oh, well, she was somewhere shooting up heroin, be like, absolutely not, because she would have died in that moment. Yep. So according to prosecution, he's hopped up on drugs. He spent the entire day fully twerked on Playboy magazines, just cranking it with his friends. But Bobby isn't back yet. Mm -mm. So they believe that he knocked on Sharice's door. And because Purvis was was a familiar face, she let him in. And then he was like, hey, can I get some water? So then apparently, according to them, he made several sexual advances towards her because he had just seen women and white women in Playboy magazines and he can't control his urges. Mm -mm. His peen is directing the show at this point. And the way they keep saying, they're like, he wanted sex from a white woman. Like, Like, this is the holy grail of sexual encounters. I don't know, just the way they say it. He wanted, he just was like, needed sex from a white woman. Well, like, I think, yeah, what they're what they're trying to do is play up to the jury that he is such an animal that mm-hmm. it's like, mm-hmm. you know, he had the audacity to attack a white woman. Exactly. That almost that this is the only way he could have gotten sex from a white woman. Right, is by snatching it and stealing it. and uh, Uh-huh. Then he had to kill her, right? So fucked up. So... According to them, she denied him and he became totally enraged due to his drugged up state. And it is worth noting the prosecution made many mentions of the dark colored hand on the back door and Sharice's white skin with no evidence of anything missing from the apartment. A motive of robbery can reasonably be excluded. Because Sharice's tampon was removed, it is reasonable to believe that sex was the motivating factor for this crime. So Purvis was convicted and sentenced to death. It sounds like an open and shut case, right? Mm-hmm. But of course, it wouldn't be fair if we did not look into the defense's side. Yeah, and also like, we wouldn't dick you over with a 30-minute case. <laughs> uh-huh. True, and scene. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now we're gonna get into who is Purvis Payne? 
Purvis grew up in Tipton County, Tennessee, born to Carl and Bernice Payne. Carl was a pastor and he also owned a painting business and Bernice was a childcare provider. He was the oldest of three children and he was born prematurely. The hospital was segregated at the time of his birth and he was in the NICU for some time before going home. And as a result of this, he now lives with an intellectual disability. And the way that they talked about it was that because it was segregated, he wasn't given the same care that a white child in the NICU would have gotten. So because of the limited resources available, he now lives with his intellectual disability. Yes. Purvis struggled in school. Um, Though he tried, he continued to have difficulty with reading, spelling, and math, even after being placed in resource classes. Despite his best efforts, Mr. Payne was unable to graduate. Growing up, he had also had trouble with everyday tasks like cooking and doing laundry. And as a child, he needed help feeding himself until he was five. And he made it all the way to his senior year of high school. But to graduate, he had to take a statewide test. And he took it five or six times, I think. And he failed every time. So he he got all the way through school and struggled every bit of the way. Yeah. But he couldn't pass that test. And so he never he never graduated. Makes me so sad because he worked so hard. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. yeah, it is. It's just so sad. And that's going to put him obviously at a disadvantage, like getting jobs and, you know, all the things. Totally. And I know that, I mean, the no child left behind thing is really frustrating. I know it wasn't in, that wasn't part of the curriculum back then, but it still pisses me off because I feel like it's not fair to look at every child and think that they all should be on the same level or learn the same way or take tests the same way. Exactly. And it's just frustrating. I mean, he should have graduated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. He made it through. He worked his butt off. A standardized test does not... I mean, Albert Einstein indicative failed of him. standardized tests. Like, right. Yeah, exactly. Just And they're stressful. Like, I can understand mm-hmm. that. So Purvis had gotten a job at the local Pizza Hut for a time after high school, but he was unable to complete his necessary tasks without help or step-by-step instruction. So he, you know, he'd worked there for a while, but unless he had somebody helping him, he couldn't remember how to make the pizzas and things like that. So that made it difficult for him to find work. He was known for helping out around his father's church in any way he could. He would like drive people to and from service. He also worked with his father at his painting business and that kind of gave Carl a way to help, you know, keep an eye out for Purvis too. There is not one person who has ever testified to seeing Purvis use drugs or know about him using drugs. By all accounts, Purvis was a moral and kind young man who had never been in trouble with the law before. So his first run-in with the law is being arrested for murdering two people in the attempted murder of a third, two of which are children. So... I don't think it's going to be any shock to anybody that we're going to have to get into some dis- like this case has been audited and there were some discrepancies. There were some discrepancies. Yeah. Yes. So, first, there is zero mention of Purvis being on drugs, being suspected of being on drugs, etc. in the police reports. And in fact, Purvis's mother Bernice went down to the police department the day Purvis was arrested begging for them to drug test him. And almost to the point where she was like, her husband, Carl was like, you need to stop because you're going to get in trouble. Yeah, he she thought was she not, was going to get arrested. Yeah, she was not having it. But the police department refused. They refused. Why? Why would they not test him? They found a syringe cap and like a baggie with white residue in it. So by all accounts, they said that they had tested it for cocaine, which I watched 
what was it? How to fix a drug scandal. Mm-hmm. So I don't trust that one little bit. I mean, you know, I need some receipts. Yeah. But like, why? Why wouldn't they have done it? Yeah. What could it have been? But they told Bernice that they didn't have any reason to suspect he'd been on drugs, so they didn't need to test him. Yet they're using that in the case. Uh-huh. Yeah, as that's evidence. their whole theory of the motive is drug crazed. He was drug crazed. We found white residue which tested positive for cocaine. So he so that means there's cocaine in his system. Right. And that goes in as fact at a trial and he was never tested. And the the officer saying that his eyes looked wild and his pupils were co- contracted and like all these things, that's lending credence to the whole he was on drugs. But he never said that until the trial. That's not in any police reports, right? We mm-hmm. don't have anything substantiating well, that he would have been on drugs or suspicion. To be honest, I don't think that the wild look about him or the, you know, him being like out of breath or whatever. I don't think that that could only be drugs because it, again, we, Torella, you and I, and a lot of other people in the world have the luxury and the privilege of not knowing what it's like. We could go up to a crime scene before anybody got there. We could be covered in blood and we could be like, look, I just walked up to it. And they'd be like, we understand you're Mm -hmm. free to go. Good citizen. Yeah, we don't know what it's like to be instantly accused of something that we didn't do. Right. Did or didn't do, Mm -hmm. but, uh, you know. So if he didn't do it and he was literally just being a good citizen, which is what he was brought up to do, and now he knows instantly once he is cornered by this police officer, oh, fuck, they're going to think I did this. Yeah, this is a white family and I'm a black man. Mm -hmm. I'm the only person here. Yeah. Yeah. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. I would have run too. Mm -hmm. I would have probably had a, a, well, I sure as shit would have been way out of breath because of my experience hiking my ass up these stairs, but sure. I can understand it. And it doesn't, to me, I'm not like, oh, it's gotta be drugs. Also, just like on that, his state or whatever, the, when the officer said it looked like he was sweating blood. I, okay. So I haven't mentioned, I talked to Kelly Henry, which is Purvis's death penalty lawyer. She was so gracious to, talk with me on the phone about this case and kind of go through a little bit of it. But she said that the officer, you know, it was quoted as he looked like he was sweating blood, which sounds like he's that covered in blood, right? Mm -hmm. And she's like, he was just sweating and he's black. Oh my God in heaven. So it looks darker on him. Mm -hmm. That's what he saw. And he quoted it as sweating blood. Like, The racism in this case is very, 
It's not even underlying. I mean, Mm-mm. it's blatant. Yes. Wow. Okay, so let's go back through the case, this time from the defense's perspective. And we think you will be astonished. Mm-hmm. So Purvis's girlfriend, Bobby Thomas, was out of town visiting family. Purvis had no way of getting into her apartment I or getting in touch say, with her because say of that. this is and now it's the 1980, late 1980s. So the two had plans to spend the weekend together, but he dropped it by her apartment throughout the day to catch her once she got back home. Because again, he can't like, She's not going to text him and be like, hey, I'm 20 minutes away. Mm-hmm. The most they could do is page each other. I don't even know if pages were even a thing then. So according to friends, family, and the friend that Purvis was riding around with, Purvis spent time with them, attended a church picnic, and did ride around with uh, some with Sylvester Williams. But they did not look at a Playboy magazine or shoot up cocaine. They were reading Jet magazine, which featured Eddie Murphy on the cover, not beautiful, busty, white, hot, backdoor action ladies. Mm-mm, mm-mm. And look, if Eddie Murphy gets your engine revved up, by all means. Sure, you know? sure, sure, sure. If that like, was it Eddie Murphy? Was that in the 80s? That all red outfit, the leather. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I don't feel like that did it for purpose. Well, it cert- certainly doesn't help the case if that is what got him going. Right, right. But to look at Eddie Murphy, who was on the cover for Beverly Hills Cop or whatever, what was it? Mm-hmm. I think so. I actually don't know. But And then you're like, you know what? This makes me want to get sex from a white woman. Gotta have yeah. it. Gotta have it. Eddie Murphy just totally reminds me of sex with white women. Yeah. I don't think that you look at Eddie Murphy and then you think, where are the white women at? Exactly. That's a fucking leap. Mm-hmm. It's not even a leap. It's just fucking ridiculous. Well, it's, it's stupid. So then the attack on the Christophers occurs. Purvis is returning to the complex to see if Bobby is home again. And this time he hears crying calls for help. Now, mind you, the downstairs Nancy, Nancy Wilson and Purvis Payne, they're the only two people who have heard the cries and have actually acted on it. There are multiple people who have, who have heard it. Mm-hmm. The prosecution says that Purvis could not have heard Lacey crying as she would have bled out immediately. Therefore, he is lying and is guilty. So Kelly said, and she I didn't even think about this. She was like, remember, Nicholas was under four at the time. He's like three and a half. And she's like, to Purvis, that's a baby. And if you're outside of an apartment and you hear a child crying, like he referred to both of them as the babies. But he says he heard a baby crying. But the prosecution literally locked the word baby into that can only be Lacey. Therefore, he's lying because she would have already been dead. But he he heard Nicholas crying. And so he went in because Nicholas is a very, very young child. It sounds like a mm-hmm. baby crying or a kid crying, you know, like. Well, they're like a year apart. I mean. Yeah, they're not that far apart. And we do know that he was still alive. So it just like. They literally are like, well, he's lying because the only baby there was Lacey. So Mm -hmm. throw the whole thing out. Like, I don't know. It just doesn't make any sense to me. And the timeline here is very, very contradictory. And Kelly talked about that too, because I was really confused, like looking through the court documents because Nancy says, or the state's document says that everything started at 310 
And then by 323, the police arrive or whatever. So this is a very tight timeline. And the state says this makes it impossible for it to have been anybody other than Purvis because he's the only one there. We got there immediately. Nancy hears the screaming, calls the cops immediately, all this stuff, right? And, you know, that just totally makes it so that nobody else could have been there and left and all this stuff. But according to the defense attorney, Kelly Henry, the attack actually began closer to 2.50 p.m. And the police were called at about 3.20. And this fits with Nancy's own testimony saying that she starts hearing things. She goes outside. She talks to people in the backyard trying to figure out what, who, first of all, where it's coming from. So other people point to Sharice's apartment. She actually does start going up the back steps and then realizes that this is more than she can handle. She feels like there's something big going on. So then she goes back down the stairs and then she calls the police. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't call immediately. And what is everybody doing in the backyard, Tori? That's yes, exactly. That's what I'm saying. So they are having a cookout. A fucking cookout. Yeah, there's like they're a like bunch grilling of people out. out there. Laying in the sun in lawn chairs, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Sharice is screaming. Nancy mm-hmm. describes them as blood curdling screams. Sharice is screaming. They testify that they see somebody trying to open the door and somebody shutting it over and over, which yes. there's problems with that testimony, but we'll get into that in a little bit. And nobody does anything. Well, and this is a very tiny apartment unit, Mm -hmm. like apartment complex. It's tiny. There are four units total. Yeah. It's not like this massive place that you're like, well, I don't really know. And, you know, you hear a lot of noises and whatever. Even if you don't know the person, I don't understand how you could just be like, well, you know, they're on their own. Yeah. How do you live with yourself hearing those screams and not doing anything? Exactly. Like... What what could have happened if somebody had run up those steps and opened that door? Mm-hmm. Or because Sharice was trying to get out. Mm-hmm. She was trying and, to open that back door so that she could get out and get help. And if you see the crime scene photos, the ones that they did take, there's blood all over that back door. Yes, it is completely covered from doorknob down, completely covered. And the wall, just the whole back wall, it's, it's insane. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the tampon and the hat and the beers for just a minute. Interestingly enough, the tampon appears in no crime scene photos. Exactly goose egg crime scene photos. So bupkiss on the tampon. Mm -hmm. The police admitted to moving the hat prior to the photos being taken. And the police reports all differ as to how many beers were found and where. Were they in the apartment outside the landing? The bottom line here, I feel like, is if anything was moved prior to the photos being taken, then we can't trust the photos. Like, No, that at that point becomes a staged crime scene. Mm-hmm. And the tampon was not found until two days after the murder. And it's not in the crime scene photos, but they yeah. write in their report later that it was found next to Sharice's body, mm-hmm. like next to her leg. I'm guessing they pulled it out of the garbage can. Mm-hmm. You know, like I just... I don't understand. Purvis only had two nicks on his hand. Sharice was stabbed 42 times and had 42 defensive wounds. One of her fingernails was almost completely torn off. The assailant would have been bloody 
and most definitely suffered cuts and severe scratches and left his blood and bodily fluids at the scene. Mm-hmm. What were you going to say? Basically, I was going to apologize for the fact that it's not that I'm desensitized, but I don't know. There's something about like nails bending back that really hurts my feelings. And I understand that 42 stab wounds should give me mm-hmm. a worse reaction than her fingernail being bent back, but I just reacted. Yeah, you know that hurt. It all yeah. hurt, but you oh, know yeah, that. yeah, for sure. But I mean, that also just tells you how... Hard she was fighting. Hard she was fighting and how mm-hmm. brutal this attack was. And Purvis has nothing on him. Mm-hmm. Nothing. And I asked Kelly about the, you know, that they said that there were scratches on his chest or whatever, his shoulder. And he says, no, those are stretch marks. And I said, well, that's easy enough to prove, right? Like he should still have them today. And I was like, you know, how do they look like scratches in the photo? And she said that they they never even got his booking photo until a couple years ago. Like the booking photo was not even included in the prosecution's files to the defense team. But once she did finally get it, you can clearly see that that's exactly where his stretch marks still are today and it matches up. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're in the same spot. So wow. he would have been scratched all to hell. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then the prosecution also used the fact that Purvis had blood on the top of his shoe and Purvis's testimony about Sharice hitting the wall as the reason that Purvis had to have been the attacker because Sharice would have already been dead by the time he got to her in his story. And the only way she could have splattered blood on him would be during an attack. His statement about her hitting the wall was the most damning piece of testimony that he gave. But if he was trying to help her, as he said he was, and she was found, we know that she, well, they say she was found, but it it does corroborate, with her upper body against the wall, that would corroborate his story. And the coroner himself said that it would have taken her about 30 minutes to bleed out. So if we are using the timeline of the attack starting at 2.50, not 3.10, and the police getting there about 3.23, that fits. Mm -hmm. And when he pulled the knife out of her throat, which, and he had to grab below the blade because it was too slippery, he couldn't get it out just grabbing the handle. Or he had to grab below the handle. It was very securely lodged in her throat, which is horrific. She fell back against the wall when he pulled it out. And that does make sense. And again, you or I would would know not to pull that knife out. But he mm-hmm. says that when he walked in, she was grabbing the knife, trying to pull it out, which is a natural reaction. You're trying to get it out. And he was trying to help her. So he says he did pull it out. The prosecution, though, during trial, and they, uh, Angie, her sister, talked about this, that when they brought in the testimony from the expert that said, Purvis had blood on the top of his shoes. And if he had just walked in after the attack happened, it would have only been on the bottom of his shoes. He would have stepped in it, but it wouldn't be on the top. And they said that even if he had pulled the knife out of her or whatever, that no blood would have gotten on the top of his shoe from that because she would have already been dead. But that totally contradicts their own timeline that says it would have taken her 30 minutes to bleed out. And we're talking about an attack that by the state's timeline happened 10 minutes before. She would have still been alive, no? Yeah, she, her heart would have still been pumped. Mm-hmm. It just no, no, makes sense. Okay, no. so let's talk about the dark hand scene on the outside of the door. The detail of the hand being 
dark came two days after the murder. And by this point, the sheriff is going around town being like, we got the right guy for this murder. It was Purvis. They're high-fiving. Everything is great. Yeah. So by the time they go back and talk to this witness who says that she saw the hand reaching out and it was dark and it had a gold wristwatch, we already know that Purvis has been arrested and he was wearing a gold watch at the time of his arrest. The other thing that doesn't even make any fucking sense with this testimony, I don't think, it just doesn't make sense. If Sharice is trying to open this door, so she's trying to grab onto the door and open it. If you are trying to shut the door, because the witness says it was like somebody was trying to get it shut over and over, right? If you're trying to shut the door, do you reach your hand in between the door and the frame and try to pull it shut from the doorknob on the outside? Oh, no, no. mm, mm, mm. That's a good way to get your hand smashed. Mm -hmm. You're going to get smashed right to a jelly, aren't you? Mm Mm-hmm. And they said that the hand was reaching to the outside of the door, but below the doorknob. That would be them pulling the door open. There's no way to shut the door by pulling it that way because the door opens to the inside. That doesn't make any sense. I I just don't get it. Another man who lived in the complex, John Ed Williams, also saw a black man fleeing the scene and that matched the description that Purvis gave, but this was never followed up on and he has now passed away. So there's no way to go back and talk to him. But the police did talk to the people in the complex. And he said that before the police got there, he saw a man run out of the complex, same description as Purvis gave, got in his car and drove away. And then the police came down. Sharice's ex-husband was incarcerated at the time of the murder. And remember, we talked about him being very violent. And he was, he was very violent. He was actually incarcerated at the time of this murder. So initially, the police were like, well, obviously, he could not have fucking done it, right? The problem is, he was incarcerated, but at the time that he was incarcerated, they let the prisoners in that jail leave for the day. They had like day passes. So as long as they were back by roll call at the end of the day, it didn't matter what they did during the day. They could go do whatever they wanted. What kind of prison is this? I know. And they didn't keep logs of who left and who came Well, why should they? I mean, who really gives a shit? Yeah, they're fine, right? Right. So he very well could have left for the day, killed Sharice, and then checked back in that afternoon or evening. Wow. They literally have no records as to whether he would have been inside the jail or if he would have left that day. Well, they don't need to because it was clearly Purvis. (laughs) Exactly. And Purvis's fingerprints were on the telephone. And they were on the counter. And he said he tried to make a phone call, but he couldn't. He's in shock, probably. He can't think of any numbers. And he goes to the sink. So his fingerprints are there, but there's no blood on the phone. If he had done this attack. Oh, he would have been covered and bleeding himself. Yes, he would have been covered. He would have been bleeding himself. There would have been blood all over that phone. There's Mm -hmm. not a drop of blood on the phone, but his fingerprints are on it. That doesn't make any sense. There's no way. The state also introduced the evidence that Sharice's rape kit tested positive for acid phosphatase, which is an enzyme present in semen, which we talked about earlier. And they used that as evidence that Sharice was raped. And then they bolstered that by the used tampon they, quote, found next to her body, right? Mm -hmm. So she had to have been raped, and this has to be the motive. During trial, 
though, it was disclosed that this enzyme is present in other bodily fluids and it doesn't alone point to sexual activity. But what was not disclosed at trial was another reasonable explanation for finding that enzyme that also does not point to rape, and that is consensual sex. So Sharice was dating a man named Daryl at the time, and he had told police that they had slept together the night before the murder. The state's expert witness at trial did agree that if there there was semen found in Sharice's body, it could have been there for days. You know, you don't know. You can't tell you can't tell when a fingerprint was left. You can't tell specifically when semen was left. Not in that way, not right. inside her body. All you know is that hopefully semen is on everything. Exactly. Semen's everywhere. And of course at that time there wasn't DNA testing available so they couldn't tell whose semen it would have been if it was semen. So it's just an enzyme present in semen is there, therefore we know that Purvis raped her. Mhm. Well, because he was like all jacked up off of looking at pictures of Eddie Murphy. I know. And he gets me jacked. I get it. He gets me jacked up too. Of course it's he just, does. Yes. You know? So the state though is now using the fact that Purvis was never charged with or convicted of rape as a reason not to test the tampon or the rape kit for DNA. And they say that it would have, that it had nothing to do with his conviction because he wasn't charged with rape and he wasn't convicted of rape. Therefore, the evidence that Maybe she was right, maybe she wasn't, or whatever, which they, I mean, they say she was, but they say that has nothing to do with his conviction. So, should we find somebody else's DNA on the rape kit? That actually is not going to do anything Mm -mm. for his conviction. It wouldn't have changed the outcome because they didn't charge him with rape. (laughs) So, somebody else could have raped her, but that doesn't mean they murdered her. It's neither here nor there. Yeah. Purvis still murdered her. Clearly, and that's clear as day. No, of course, because what happens, and I get it too, you know, I just hear Eddie Murphy's laugh and I go from six to midnight. I get it. Oh my God. Fully torqued. Rage. Yes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And if I can't have sex in that moment, I'm going to, I'm just going to go on a murder rampage. Mm -hmm. It's just so stupid. I know. I know. And now all of a sudden they've lost all the evidence. So those fingernail clippings, gone. And like we said, one of those fingernails was pulled all the way back. There is DNA under those nails. How convenient. Mm -hmm. No explanation, no chain of custody records, no nothing. Just, I don't know, they're gone. And the state says that the vaginal swabs were destroyed in 1990 when the evidence fridge broke, but nobody noticed it for a few days. See, here's the fucking problem that I have with this. I have so many problems with police getting too big for their britches, like things like that. But if they, so they have all the evidence and then they're just like, whoops, it evaporated. We don't know what happened to it. It became spoiled. Somebody uh, spilled their Coca-Cola on it. I don't know what happened, whatever. Mm-hmm. No, they're not held accountable, not one little bit. Everybody's nope. just like, okay, well, that sucks. Mistakes we move happen. on now. Yep. Sorry. If it was anybody else and the police were like, hey, we need this evidence, you better believe you'd be arrested for that shit. Absolutely, yeah. And how, like, we're presuming that there's other evidence in this fridge. So you mean to tell me that however many cases are affected by this and it's just like a whoopsie? Yeah, that, lost those are mistakes we cannot evidence? make. Mm-mm. Yeah. Just the same as mistakes that we cannot make as police officers are killing random people as a whoops. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But that's neither here nor there. That's a whole nother story for a whole nother day, but still. Yeah. Well, no, because that's what we're talking about. There's a man right here who's about to get murdered. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. There's just so many, there's just so many problems. Like, why is all the evidence gone? Mm -hmm. They were able to get testing of the knife handle. And Mm -hmm. they did find unknown male DNA on the knife handle. It did not match Purvis, but there's not enough markers. Yeah, what, it needs to be like 10, 12 markers and there were nine or something? Yeah, something like that. There there just wasn't enough. It It was not enough because it's, you know, degraded over time and all the things. There weren't enough alleles to actually put into the database. So we know that there's unknown male DNA, but without the evidence under the fingernails or some of this other evidence, we don't have enough markers to then put it in the database and find out whose DNA this is. Okay, so that by itself should be like, okay, then we can't convict someone. I know. Right? I mean, if you if you can't, if you don't have enough evidence to to prove, mm-hmm. like shouldn't that negate the whole you know what I mean? Like Yeah. I don't know. And the blood that was on his shirt. If you can't use it to prove that it was purpose, then you shouldn't be able to use it to prove that it was purpose. Exactly. And the blood that was on his shirt and his clothes was transfer. It wasn't um, high velocity blood spatter, you know, from him raising the knife up and coming back down. It's striking, sure. Yeah, it did not match the blood that would be on somebody who was involved in the attack. And... There is also, so they didn't, they did not drug test Purvis at all. They did though, during the autopsy, do toxicology on Sharice. And we are in absolutely no way, not victim shaming or blaming or anything. No, nothing. But it is a fact. She did have methamphetamine in her system. And they did talk to witnesses who said that Sharice did use drugs, that she also used cocaine. And she sold cocaine. And there are witnesses who say that there was a drug dealer that Sharice was having problems with. And this drug dealer had said, had told other people that he was going to kill Sharice because she stole drugs from him and money and that she owed him or something. We have a suspect and we have motive. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And now that we're 30 years down the line, you know, who knows? That person may not still be alive. Her ex-husband is now dead. He was shot to death in an altercation where the person who killed him was shooting in self-defense. Mm. So, so he's clearly he's gone. a very violent, aggressive, or was, excuse me, a very violent, aggressive person. Yeah. And, and again, I, I struggle with these cases a little bit because I know that Sharice's family, they fully believe that Purvis is the person that did this. And I understand why, because... So many people, you know, when you hear the prosecution say, we believe that Purvis knocked on the door to ask for a glass of water and she let them in, she let him in. Her family believes that as fact, that he went to ask her for water. Right. I mean, I have my whole life taken what news reports and police officers do in press conferences and things like that as fact, when mm-hmm. they say words like we believe mm-hmm. or Consistent the evidence with. shows. Sure, sure, mm-hmm. sure, sure. When in fact, and that's the thing, we talked at first about how wrongful conviction cases are tough because the victims get, the victims get lost in it. And I 100% agree. But if the police did their fucking job, exactly. we wouldn't have to do this. Exactly. Right. Because that's, again, a lot of people get screwed with this kind of stuff. But the victims do because how many times have we seen people 
who get a slap on the wrist or get away with oh it or whatever, God. they're going to continue to go on and attack other people. Like, So right now we are covering the John Wayne Gacy uh, yes. docuseries. Yeah. Yeah, on our doc jams. And it is just... It's that, exactly. Yes, a great example of that. There just are other suspects that should have been looked into. And they just simply weren't. They had a man that was there. And I get that it looks bad. I do. And I'm not saying that Purvis could not have done it. But I am saying that I don't think that they proved it. And we certainly can't put a man to death that, number one, could be innocent and also who has an intellectual disability. So right right now, the only way that Purvis is going to be able to get back into court, and they do have a court date set, I don't know exactly when it is, is on this intellectual disability claim that he shouldn't be put to death because of his intellectual disability. So that is a piece of legislation that is waiting to be passed in Tennessee that we won't put people with intellectual disabilities to death. He cannot get back into court at this time on his innocence claims because the state has lost all the evidence. There's no avenue to go through with that because what can we do about it? And the state contends that if we retest everything, it wouldn't matter anyway. But they don't have a way to get back into court for that. So right now, the pressing issue is to get him off death row because he did have a stay of execution, which expired in April. So at this point, he could be executed the state can set a date. So if that legislation gets passed, then he would be commuted to a life sentence. The other option right now is clemency. And Governor Bill Lee does have this case on his desk and he's reviewing it and who knows how long it's going to take him. He certainly will not make a decision before the death penalty legislation gets passed. So that's going to be the first order of business, I'm sure. But it is on his desk. So if you scroll down we will link to where you can go to actually contact. If you live in the state of Tennessee, you can contact Bill Lee. And the the Innocence Project has it completely written up for you. Like you can send an email to his office. All you have to do is like put in your information, but they've formatted the email for you. You can send that off. You can call his office. If you live in Shelby County, you can contact the DA there. She's got some power in this case as well. She could have it, you know, reopened. She could you know, whatever. So there are a few avenues right now. Their biggest hope is clemency. But we just, we hope that you'll share this case, that you'll look into it yourself. You know, again, we're not saying that it's not possible that he could have done it. But what is the purpose that the police had to, I don't want to say plant evidence, but uh, stage evidence? Yeah. You know, they had to recreate the scene because they forgot to put color film in their camera, they said. And that's where the hat came from. The hat wasn't, nobody knows where the hat was, but it wasn't on Lacey's arm when they got there. And in the pictures it is. Mm-mm-mm. You know, I just, there's questions. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Let us know what you guys think. And thanks for being here with us. We will catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye. Okay, you guys, we have some more new patrons to thank this week. We are so excited. Hey, girl, thanks to Delena, Reba Barnes. Is this Danielle? Danielle? I'm sorry. Jana LaRue. Sarah Alger. Ariella Zuri. Emily Bollinger. Mercedes Anderson. 
Jessica Boyce, Kristen, Chelsea Eckerman, Ashley Goodwin, Lily Gates, Lynn, Crystal Gupton, Lorraine DeFlorio, Bronte Dealey, Kaylee McBrennan, Jennifer Settles, Rebecca, Kinsey, Audrey Erickson, Peyton Stinson, Cheyenne Ramsey, Autumn Peace, Ali Despians, Beth McKay, Amber Swisher, Serena Wasdorp, Vivi Von Plump, Taryn Mancera, Valerie Martinez, Jessica Brinson, Samantha Romaine, Matt Marr, Mara Grace, Paula Rojas, Haley McMore, Leslie, Anna Hunter, Stacy Miller, Julie Kraft, Amanda Fenton, Jess Krigger, Team Jamavic, Carmen, Amber, Amy Medina, Lauren Doherty, Jessica Nedegger. Oh my God. Hey girl, thanks. We love you guys. Yes, thank you so much. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening and we will meet you back here next week. Bye. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloane Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at killerqueenspodcast.com for merch and other info about the show. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.